Hey, good morning. My name is Kelty. This is the part of our service that we call charitable giving. I'm so happy to see you all here this morning and those of you home on that little camera at the back as well. This is the chance that I get to say thank you to the folks like you who help support French Church financially. As an organization that relies entirely on the donations of its community, this is our opportunity really to look and say thank you so much for allowing us to come to you every Sunday morning to help you go out into the community and make a difference and make a change. If you would like to give financially to French Church, there's a few ways you can do that. And if you open the app, that's probably the easiest way. Um, there's a spot on there that you click donate, and there's a couple of different options. One is called pre-authorized giving, which is sort of the set it and forget it, where you're, every month there's a certain amount that gets donated. Alternatively, there's a one-time donation that option there. The other option is if you're here physically, right at the back of the church, there's a little black box that you can put your check or your cash into an envelope and pop it in that box as well. We will take all forms of donation, um, however it needs to come for sure. While you're on the app, take a look at what's coming up for us. We're starting to pull together. Now that we're able to you know, be together a little bit more than we have been in the past 18 months, looking at reinvigorating some of our connections opportunities through the fall. Our kids' programs are slowly getting going through the summer. So if you have children, either at the, the younger age or in the older switch category, those activities are happening through the summer to allow kids to start to come back together and see each other um, in a more regular way. In any event, have a wonderful Sunday, and thank you very much for being here. My 11th year was the longest year of my life. My older brother would regularly exclaim, you're still 11? It's a running joke in my family to this day, like I was stuck forever 11. It likely has something to do with the fact that uh, I was 11 the year my two best friends decided to reject me. I was a super happy kid. My nickname back then was Sandy. Even the name sounds happy, Sandy. <laughs> the only trouble I ever got into was for talking too much in class. You'll see it on every report card. Sandy's a delight to have in class. She has many ideas to contribute, but needs to be mindful to raise her hand when she has something to say and not shout out of turn. I loved singing and dancing and making elaborate performances. I loved feeling all the feelings and I dove deep into other people's stories and just really wanted everyone to be okay. You people get it. Middle school, grade school, it can be a truly horrific time. And for some reason, my two best friends decided that they wanted to dominate the school that year. They'd create stupid pranks, or they would dare me to go up to other kids and say something nasty. And I really didn't want to do that. And so began the slow burn of rejection. Note passing, slander on bathroom walls, basically every cliche mean girl thing you can think of happened. If you've ever seen the movie, that thing is real. <laughs> but the worst day of my 11th year is seared into my memory, and it still feels like a hard ball of clay in the pit of my stomach. I was a grade six patrol. I was a very loyal, diligent, reliable grade six patrol. I loved having that vest. I just felt very powerful. <laughs> there I was at my post after school, faithfully leading the children. I don't know what patrol's motions do. I keep wanting to do this, but I don't know if that's what, what they do, but let's say that it is. And, uh, and I see this angry mob, to me they look angry, that's for sure, of uh, grade sixers heading towards me. And I see my former two best friends leading the pack. 
That day at the crosswalk, that was the end. That's the day that's forever etched in my mind. Okay, so I'm watching with dread as this gang of girls and boys march ever closer to my stop. Terror moved through my body. I knew something was going to happen, and the unknown was torture. You know what I mean? You know, when something terrible is about to happen, say you're about to get into a car accident, or you're about to get some really important news, or you're about to speak publicly, you know, you get that feeling where your heart race is either racing or slowing down, and you can't tell which is which. You feel like you're going to puke or pass out, or, you know, you get a really dry mouth and then sweat everywhere else. Like, that's, that feeling is normal in certain situations. But that physiological response at the hands of people you once trusted and felt safe with, people you thought were your people, what the heck? I continued my duties. I tried to appear as nonchalant as possible. In my head, I'm going, this isn't happening, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. The mob stopped at my post, and the ringleaders counted down. Three, two, one. And they began to sing. There was a farmer, had a dog, and Sandy was her name, oh, S-A-N-D-I, 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 Sandy was her name, oh. There was a farmer, had a dog, and Sandy was her name, oh, woof, A-N-D-I, woof, A-N-D-I, and so on, and so on. It's got five verses. It went on and on. So the song feels like it's never going to end, and I can no longer feel my feet. I tried not to look at them. I tried to block out their voices. I tried to imagine I was anywhere else but there. I did not run away. And I did not yell at them to stop. But he did cry. And as I cried, I continued to guide the little kids safely across the street. Eleven had already been a really hard year for me. We moved a couple times, my older siblings started dating other people, and they weren't around anymore. And my opa also died that year, the third of four of my grandparents to pass away. It would have been a good year to have strong friendships. People in my life who understood. People who liked me and accepted me for who I was and not who they could turn me into. My 11th year would have been a good year to have really good friends, but that's not the year I got. The year I needed that feeling of belonging more than anything was the year the group kicked me out, shunned, bullied, humiliated me. I'm pretty bad at remembering my past. I don't remember a lot of it, honestly. But I, that year, that moment is embedded in my mind. That was the year I learned the power of belonging. Not because I felt the support every little girl should feel in her 11th year, I learned the power of belonging that year because it was taken away from me. It made me wonder if it was ever even there to begin with. It made me question everything I knew about relationships, friendship, support, acceptance, even love. If some random kindergarten kid had walked past my stop and yelled, hey, Sandy, you suck, I would have been like, oh, such a strange child, strange thing to do. But the deliberate thought out, like they planned this at lunch ahead of time, they've rehearsed this scene, the, the rejection of people that you thought were your best friend, that is where pain resides. In my, in my 11th year, I became acutely aware of what it feels like to not belong. And that feeling has colored my life ever since. 
For many of you, this story was painful for you to hear because you have your own adolescent, teenage year uh, feeling rejected where you didn't fit in or you didn't belong. I I wonder if you've thought about that much, that word, belonging. I wonder what the word means to you and what ideas and memories it conjures up. For some of you, you'll know instantly. Yep, got it. Grade four, Jimmy McLaren stood me up on our weekend fishing trip. I never saw him again. You'll know. And for some of you, it might take a little bit longer to breathe in to times in your life when you felt like you didn't belong. Maybe you didn't really want to acknowledge it, and I don't blame you. It's pretty sucky. It's sucky as a kid at 11, and it's sucky as an adult at 40. And it doesn't always happen like it did in my story with this explicit outright rejection. Like, hey, guess what? You suck. You're out. We don't like you. It can be a subtle experience. A conversation among friends that gets quieter when you join in. Maybe it's the band you got kicked out of. Don't get any ideas. Or the sports team you warmed the bench for. Maybe it was a parent that shushed you in public because they didn't want you to embarrass them or the in-laws who wanted to keep your checkered past a quiet from the extended family? Who left you out? Who said, you're not enough, we don't like you? And how did that feel? So I ask you again, what does belonging mean to you? How to know when you have it and when you don't? And why does it matter? Grade 8 camping trip. I'm 12 years old. I have curly hair about this big. It's as awkward as you're picturing it in your mind. I'm not sure what I was thinking with that hairstyle, but that's what I was rocking at the time. Two of my best friends, we spent every lunch hour together. We walked to my buddy's house every lunch hour for years. We spent every Sunday together. We went to church together. We went to church together on Fridays. These were my guys. Grade A camping trip when it came to tent assignments. Guess who chose who? They chose each other and not me. There wasn't even room in the campsite for me to be with my friends. Brady Brown says this, A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. And this is the line that gets me. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we're meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, We hurt others, and we get sick. It's not a bit of a punch in the gut. If researchers are right, belonging isn't something we enjoy. It's not something that's nice to have. It's a need. I started with the first quote from uh, Abraham Maslow, right? His line is essentially this. When you have enough to eat and you're not running from tigers, your next most important thing is to belong. (laughs) 
So where did you belong? Or maybe, where didn't you belong? There's this researcher, I, w- I was thinking about this, like, Al Sanders, she said, I, you know, I have no memories of my life, but that year. And she's, you know, she's singing the song that they sang. It's seared into her memory. I can still feel walking to that room and my two best friends going, oh yeah, you're not with us. As I look at your faces, I can see you have your memories too. Why do they stick in our brains like they do? I spent some time researching this. There's a guy who says this, memories are designed to protect us. I always thought memories are things you, for parties, so you could tell people stories about your life, right? You know, when I was 13 and I had curly hair this big. No, he says, memories are designed to protect you. What do you remember from a childhood? You went to pet that dog, it bit you, you will always remember that. Why? So you're careful around dogs. Why do we remember rejection so strongly? To make sure it doesn't happen again. I don't know about you, but it tends to have me living a bit small, right? There's a group of people. I don't just walk up and be like, hey, I'm Vince. How's it going? It's like, uh, I'm just going to check out the group a little bit before I jump in. How many of us stay home when we probably should reach out to people? Spend more time doing lonely things than group things because getting kicked out was so painful. We don't ever want to experience that again. If memories are designed to protect us and we remember rejection so clearly, maybe the researchers are right next to eating and running away from tigers, our next most important thing is to feel like we belong. So then the question becomes, how do we belong? How do we feel like we belong? You can all feel it like, oh yeah, yeah, I belong there, but I don't belong there. But how, how is that feeling created? If belonging is important to us, and it seems to be, how do we build it? Two researchers, again, who have a whole lot of spare time on their hands and a lot of money actually researched this problem. Baumeister and Leary, they said, to feel like you belong, you need two things. And let's just play it out in our lives. So think of a time when you didn't belong. Think of a current time when you don't belong. And ask yourself, is this happening? Can you throw the first one up, Catrice? Regularly getting together with a few people and leave feeling good. Anyone ever have a family gathering that they left not feeling good? Hmm? Someone invites you to a party and you leave going, oh, sweet mother, that is the worst three hours of my life. Friends who are like, hey, let's get together. And you leave going, maybe if I just slam my hand in a door, then I'll have an excuse to not go with them. But we've also experienced those moments of true connection. Someone where we spend time with them and we leave just feeling like, oh, That felt good. You need those feelings on a regular basis to feel like you belong. Ask yourself, with your family, your friends, your colleagues, 
your neighbors, your buddies. Do you have regularly good feelings? Second criteria. Can you throw up Catrice? Those people care deeply for our long-term well-being. Because you know what? You can go to a party and meet somebody and have a great conversation. Like, hey, you're into dirt biking and enduro. Wow, like we can talk for three hours together. But I don't feel like I belong. You need some sort of long-term peace. Like this is an ongoing thing. You don't just belong to random pieces in a moment. Although scientists have studied that. We can actually make you feel like you belong a little bit more. I can say, okay, everyone on this side here, you see all y'all? You guys are going to go head-to-head with the people on this side right here. As soon as I say that, there's this cohesion that happens. You're like, oh, it's us against them. There's a sense of belonging there, but it doesn't have that long-term sense of long-term well-being. But you can also have long-term well-being without good feelings. A lot of my family loves and cares for me deeply. I still don't want to go to family gatherings sometimes. We can have amazing feelings with someone, but they don't have long-term care. So let me ask you this. Where in your life do you have people who you get together with regularly that make you feel really great? And you know they care about you. Long-term care about you. Do you have those people in your life? It's kind of sobering when I ask myself that. And yet, that's what researchers say causes us to feel like we belong. I remember I had a friend in, in seminary, so I went to Bible school, essentially. He was a missionary's kid, so his family had moved all over the world. He'd never experienced long-term well-being, like people who cared about him long-term, because he moved. Every six, eight months, he would move. He'd be back in Canada for a year, then Papua New Guinea for a year, then he's in a different boarding school, then he's with his family for three months, then they send him away to do this. You know what he would do in the dorm? A hundred guys, all in close proximity. He'd close his door and play video games. He'd never experienced long-term caring relationships. He didn't even know what to do with them. For many people, the church was part of that long-term caring, and then something happened. (laughs) I'm lucky. If I would have gone through my divorce while I was in a traditional church, long-term caring, yeah, no more. You're out, buddy. It's crazy how much of our lives are guided by the desire to belong, and yet how little we know about how to feel like we belong and who we should belong to. I was thinking a lot about how we do this. I I was dirt biking yesterday, no disrespect guys, um, if you're listening. Great group of guys, um, fantastic time out riding. Everything went really well until at the end we got to the parking lot and started having a couple drinks. And then the joking started. And very quickly the joking turned to something, you know, it, it starts off funny down the middle and then it slowly starts to edge to an area where you're going, okay, that, that was on the edge. And then it's one more joke and you're going. At one point they had a, a joke, one person made a joke. And the butt of the joke was people who I love deeply, the queer community. 
And I have this moment where I'm going, okay, that's not right. That's not okay. But at the same time, I can feel another feeling that's going, when I call this out, those warm, nice feelings that we all had together are gone. How often in our desire, in our need, in our profound need to belong, do we hide parts of ourselves? I was looking through the Bible, the number of stories of people putting on disguises to make something happening. One of my favorite ones, well, we did Jacob. You guys, we talked about Jacob the last while. He put on his brother suit so that his dad thought he was his brother to steal from his brother. And then he wondered why the family kicked him out and he was on the run for the next 30 years. Abraham, one of the patriarchs of the whole, our whole Christian tradition, he shows up into a new town and he says his wife's really attractive. It actually says in the Bible, his wife's super hot. Um, you guys should read some of this stuff in there, man. It's crazy. <laughs> so he shows up into a town with a hot wife and he says, this is my sister. Why? It seems because as people are trying to date his sister, they're nice to him. We throw on these disguises to get something that isn't us. A friend of mine, this is, again, this whole message, Alessandra came up with the theme, but as I thought about it more and more, a story of a friend of mine came to me that was kind of the ground of this. He took me aside one day and he said, Vince, you know I'm an addict. I said, yeah. He said, you don't know what my addiction is, though, do you? I said, no, I don't need to know. He says it's not alcohol and drugs. Those are cool addictions, he said. My addiction, nobody likes. Nobody likes. He says, so I hide it. I put on this beautiful disguise. I'm a man who has my life together. I got things figured out. I'm a good person. I take care of people. And you know what? Everyone in my life likes my disguise. In fact, they love my disguise. They invite me out to hang out because they like my disguise so much. People are going, you are an amazing dude. We love you. You'd think he'd feel belonging. No. Because he knows they don't like him. They like his disguise. What did we say we needed to feel belonging? Leave with positive feelings. He said, every day I walk away from these people who love my disguise and I go, they don't like me. If I ever showed who I truly am inside, if I showed them my dirty dark secret over here, they'd kick me to the curb in a second. And instead of having amazing, warm, positive feelings, feeling that connection, that belonging, no, he feels shame. He calls it the attic cycle. He says, and then that shame causes me to hide more, so I put on the disguise even more, which causes me to feel more shame. How many of us live in a cycle where we disguise bits and pieces of ourselves? 
Someone says, hey, you read that book? I don't even know which book you're talking about, but I'm not going to tell you that. Hey, do you like this team? Mm. You think I picked this shirt because I liked it? It's mildly clean. Did I pick it for you all? Every day, there's a temptation to put on a disguise so that people will like us. So people will feel connected to us. They want to be in a long-term relationship with us. But here's the thing, and Brene says it beautifully. She says this, belonging is not what we negotiate with the outside world. It's something we carry in our hearts. And this is the piece that blew me away. He says, you will never feel belonging. This is her words, not mine. You will never feel belonging unless you show up as your authentic self. As she says, as you belong to yourself first. That's a bit of a kick in the gut, isn't it? You mean I got to tell you all the dirty secrets in my life? I got to be honest about the stuff that's not working, the amount of times I've screwed up? I got to sit up here and tell you all I'm divorced. I'm at least 50% shit at relationships. Let's be honest, it was probably 80%. Even as I say that, I can feel like my gut's just like, uh, like I just want to take a step back because now I shared something really, and that doesn't feel good. And yet, if Brene is right, that's the only way we can do this. So let me ask you, and when I say you, <laughs> let me ask me, and you all get to listen to my inner, inner dialogue. Where am I wearing a disguise? Where are you wearing a disguise? Where are you hiding a bit of yourself? Pretending to be something you're not. Doing things just right, saying the right thing, not saying this. Why? Because then you might feel like you belong. And that's the very thing that's undermining it. What is it like to live your life with full authenticity and then share that with the people around you? What would that feel like? An artist, dancer, singer, whatever, can't create something meaningful if they don't show up authentically and put that authentic self into their work. An audience member, a listener, or a watcher, you'll know something's off. You won't connect, you won't relate, and you'll come away feeling like an outsider observing instead of a guest invited into an experience. You may not have words to put to that feeling, but I can guarantee you that it has something to do with the artist's confidence to show up as their true self, to be vulnerable enough to say, this is me, this is who I am, and this is what I have to offer. 
Isn't that what we just learned is foundational for us to feel a sense of belonging? To show up as you are, no disguises? The type of dance that I specialized in was modern contemporary. This type of dance was intentionally developed to break away from the mold of structured and rigid ballet that uh, sought uniformity and conformity. In ballet, you could hide behind the technique because the technique was everything, and you all had to look exactly the same. Contemporary dance breaks that traditional rule in all fronts. Body shapes, music choices, and of course, movement quality. The sky's the limit. (laughs) It demands that you remove all disguises to show up exactly as you are. What a wicked tool for teaching young people that they are accepted and loved. I worked at a dance studio that did just that. Certainly when a group of people get together through the beauty of contemporary dance and they create, share, socialize, laugh, cry, and even sweat together, a sense of connection is fostered. If you've ever been on a team, then you get that. But it had... But the fact that we were able to do it just as we were, we had to do it exactly as we were. That was the only way that it worked. So we were all messes in our own way, but that was a total come-as-you-are situation. Honestly, the messier, the better. I just couldn't wait to go to work, to be with those people, because I was there, I felt like I belonged just as I was. If one of us came in with an issue, we'd stop everything, we'd talk about it, we'd work it out, and then we would continue class. At the end of every night, we would sit in a circle and share what was going on in our lives, boyfriends, parental divorce, friendship struggles, peer pressure, you name it. Everything was on the table. I remember one time there was this girl who was sharing her frustrations over a friend who kept lying to her, and she was just so frustrated and so full of rage that I was like, hey, let's go. We grabbed a mug from the kitchen, and we went outside to the dumpster, and I had her huck it as hard as she could into the dumpster just to let out her rage. And her dancing got way better after that. Or the time there was a student, she was 16, she was mortified she had a haircut that day, and it was not a good haircut. And if you've ever been a 16-year-old girl with a bad haircut, you know how devastating that can be. It was bad. It was a mullet, and not when mullets were trending. It was um, not pretty. So we all marched again. We marched to the bathroom all together, all of us girls. I grabbed a pair of scissors at reception and cut off the back of her hair. I still didn't look very pretty, but it was better than it was before. And we laughed, and we laughed. We found freedom in that belonging, and we were able to explore who we were through dance and learn what it meant to be our authentic selves to ourselves and to the group to which we belonged. So 15 years later, I'm at a gig in Calgary, and the owner of the establishment and I are discussing our shared history in Winnipeg. He finds out I used to be a dance teacher, just so happens to be the same place his daughter used to take classes. He went on to say what a difference the place had made for his daughter during a really hard time with their family. And he was saying to me, it's like like that place saved her life. It was her place to go and feel like she could be herself and feel safe and heard and kind of explore her feelings in in a truly protected way. I asked his daughter's name, and sure enough, she was one of the girls that was from that same group that I worked with. He says, no way, you're that Alessandra. You have no idea what a difference that dance studio made. She talks about it to this day. She's doing so well. And inside, I'm having like mini explosions go off because I'm just so excited. I'm like, what? It worked. The belonging did its job. It carried this young woman through hard times and pushed her towards fuller life and success and continued belonging. It just kept going. Uh, 
And that is so freaking cool. So that's why the long talks, the belly laughs, the rage outs, the creativity and joy were so effective. The time we spent creating connection and an atmosphere of belonging resulted in endless potential and possibility in the students as they moved on in their lives. We can't control our access to belonging. Not everyone has experienced this amazing dance studio that focuses on authenticity and aims to cultivate belonging. But what we knew at that dance studio was that inauthentic humans make for crappy dancers. And guess what? <laughs> It's the same lesson in every single aspect of our lives. Inauthentic humans make for crappy friends, crappy parents, crappy coworkers, crappy bandmates. You know, you name it, it goes on. <sighs> and chances are, there's going to be times in your life when you show up as your authentic self, and people won't like that, just like I did when I was 11. They'll push you away, or they'll ask you to be something that you're not. For a lot of you, it's probably happened with your families at some point. They're used to the disguise, and it's hard or uncomfortable to imagine you any other way. So this whole thing isn't without risk. I totally get that. But I can't emphasize enough that the potential of what can happen when we take the risk is just so worth it. I am honored to have been part of a place that accepted me as I was and allowed me to teach others to do the same. Completely changed me, and it's the reason I strive to create that feeling of safety and acceptance and belonging with other people in my life today. And I know with everything in me that you can all do the same. I always think of these messages as kind of like, okay, now you're, we're all broken because we know how this works. So we can continue to hide in our houses and you know, our lives. We can pull away from people and use the memories of our painful past as justification. We can do all that, but now we know better. We know that those memories are trying to protect us. And yet we still need to feel like we belong. And you know how to do it. Think of the relationships in your life where you leave having good feelings after. Do you have those? Think of the people who, when you think of long-term care for your well-being, put those two together, Bob's your uncle. But this is Friends Church. So it's never all about us, is it? We exist to inspire you, inspire me, to make the world a bit better. And so now that you know what creates belonging in you, you also know what creates belonging in the people in your life. What would it look like to invite the people you love to show up fully authentically. What would that look like? Someone, you know, you can see it. <laughs> If you have kids, you can see that era when they stop behaving like you want them to and they start behaving the opposite of how you want them to. And they're kind of giving you this like, screw you, that's not who I am anymore. I don't like dinosaurs. 
What's the purple dinosaur? Barney. There we go. I don't like Barney anymore. Screw you. What do you do? This message says you'll say this. Oh, really? Why is that? Anything else you don't like? What are you into these days? Instead of showing up by saying, you need to wear the disguise, as people start to show a bit of their vulnerability, their authenticity, we meet that with curiosity. What would that look like to the people in your life? What if every time we've had a good experience with someone in our life, we send them a note and just say, you know what? That thing you did, you're just the coolest human being ever. I think you're awesome. How do you think they would go away feeling? What if we started every conversation or finished every conversation with gratitude? I'm just so excited that I get to spend time with you today. How do you think that would make them feel? Right now, we're coming out of probably the longest separation we've ever had. Me and Lindsay were laughing about, hey, I can see your smiling face. What does long-term care look like? Waiting for someone to reach out to you? Or going through the people in your head and saying, who can I create a sense of belonging with? Who can I reach out to? Check in with? Care about? Chances are, in the building of belonging for them, we'll find belonging in ourselves too. I love how the spiritual life seems to be, kind of there's a, it's good for you and it's good for me at the same time. We know now what's going on. We know how to create belonging. Now we're left with a choice and say, will we do this? Will we make the world around us better? And that's my encouragement. That's our encouragement for you all as you walk out today and as you leave and put on clothes that we create a sense of belonging for everybody. How's that sound? Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week. Have a good one.